Good morning. Welcome to Sojourn. My name is Dylan, one of the pastors here. Thanks for joining us. If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open up to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews is towards the end of the New Testament. It's one of the larger books towards the end of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be up on the screen for you, but we are in Hebrews chapter 10, starting in verse 19. Hebrews 10, 19. This is God's word. It says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promises faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. This is God's word. Will you guys pray this prayer with me? Read the underlined portions uh, along with me. Lord God, help us turn our hearts to you and hear what you will speak. For you speak peace to your people through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. The book of Hebrews from chapter 5 through halfway through chapter 10 has been this large and intense section of explanation of Jesus as the greater one. Jesus specifically as the greater priest, the one who's not only greater than the high priest, but comes from a greater order than all of the other high priests, because his order is an eternal order, one that exists forever. We've seen that Jesus is this greater sacrifice, better than all of the other sacrifices, able to accomplish in his offering of himself and his pouring out of his own blood what no other sacrifice or offering could have accomplished. We see that Jesus has offered a better covenant, a new covenant, where now hearts can be affected and changed through what he has done, and this long explanation has been building and building and building until you can just tell that the author is ready to overflow, and here's what we need to do now about these things that you have heard. Because there is much the Lord wants us to know, but there is also much the Lord wants us to be and to do. And in light of what we know, he especially wants us to be and to do certain things. And so he brings us in to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, that based on these truths that we've been explaining for chapter after chapter after chapter, believers are called to action. They're called to three things, to draw near, to hold fast, and to consider one another. Now probably the audience was in danger of, instead of drawing near, moving away. And instead of holding fast to letting go, instead of considering one another to self-concern. It was because of their context that they were in, the persecution that they faced, the things that we've read in the rest of the letter, but it seems like these actions go after some of the dangers that they were in. And likely they are not alone in that, that we as the church this morning can join them in that. That we do have the danger of moving away, of letting go, and of self-concern rather than consideration of others. And so what is needed is we need the explanation. Why should we care about Jesus? Why is he better? We needed that, but we also need a call to action. And so the great explanation is now spilling over into action. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, he, he, he huddles them up together. 
right? We've moved from, you know, chalk talk football language. You know, you've, you've talked about the X's and O's and you've watched it on the board. And now we're in the huddle together. Like, we need to get together. Brothers, let's get together on this. And here's what we're going to go do. In the Old Covenant, only a few could go into those holy places, he tells them in verse 19. We have confidence to enter the holy places. In the Old Covenant, they didn't have that. Only a few could go in. Only the high priest, and only that, only one time a year. And so every person that was part of the people of God knew that I can go into the holy places only by representation. And even that is not my own name, but the name of my tribe. There were restrictions and regulations to follow as the high priest going in as a representative of the people would, would have the ceremonial cleansing and would make sacrifices for his sins and for the sins of the people. And so most people, they knew they could only go in by representation. And now he's saying those who are in Jesus can enter the holy places themselves and they can do so with confidence. Now, I think that there can be a fine line, and we all know this well, between what we would call confidence and arrogance, or confidence and entitlement. But those who can draw near with confidence are those who are in Christ, and they can enter with confidence, firmly grounded in Christ. The thing that we're grounded in keeps us from arrogance. It keeps us from entitlement. It's confidence that's rooted in Jesus' blood, not our perfect record, not our record of law-keeping, not some other animal sacrifice. We get to enter firmly rooted in the blood of Jesus, and the blood of Jesus excludes arrogance. It excludes entitlement. Like we're, We recognize when we have this blood that's been poured out for us that we might enter into the holy places of God that we couldn't have done that. How could I be entitled to be entering this place? I never could have done what Jesus has done. And so Jesus is the greater sacrifice whose blood actually accomplishes something. It achieves eternal redemption, the book of Hebrews says. It purifies the conscience. It goes all the way down. It makes propitiation for sins, turning away the wrath of God. It actually takes away sin. And Jesus made this sacrifice willingly as a merciful and faithful high priest of his people. And if that's true, then what's to make our confidence waver? confidence is then given to to come in we have this confidence in the holy places by the blood of jesus verse 20 continues by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh to enter the holy of holies in the tabernacle the high priest would have to go through a curtain a curtain would separate the holy of holies from everything else from the holy place and then from the outside of that in the courts So there's this thick curtain that separated it. And the curtain would be a reminder that you don't just go in there however you want. That access to God is limited. It's restricted. It's not just free and open for anybody anytime. But as the forerunner and pioneer of our faith, Jesus goes into the most holy place. And he opens that way up through the curtain. That is through his flesh. It's by the sacrificial blood of Jesus, by his death, that his, where his body was broken and offered up for sinners, that we get to go in. The curtain is pulled back, that we have access now to God. And we know the way. There are some disciples that had a question about this with Jesus. He said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and you know the way I'm going. And they said, well, we don't know the way. And so we see in Luke chap- or John chapter 14, he tells them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me, and in my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Here we have another way. Thankful for the disciples, Thomas especially, who said, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Because out of that question, we get this provoked response that's so dear to us. And Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Verse 20 says, a new and living way has been opened for us. And Jesus is that way. He is the one who died and now lives forevermore so that his death has opened the curtain and his life has now made it available for all of us to access it through him. We know the way. It's through Jesus. He's our great high priest who, as the verse continues, verse 21, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, we have a priest. We don't need another one. We have one who stands forever as our great high priest, who has made a blood sacrifice for our sins, who has opened a way for us into the most holy place so that we might have access to the living God. Chapter 2 said that he's this merciful and faithful high priest who can perfectly represent his people because he became one of them. In chapter 4, verse 14, he's the one who passed through the heavens and is able to sympathize with the weaknesses that his people experience. In chapter 7 and 8, we saw he's the better high priest because he makes an eternal sacrifice and he stands eternally as a high priest who is a mediator of not an old covenant that needed to pass away, but of a new and better covenant. And believers, here's what it says. It says, we have this high priest. He is ours. We're united to him. He is Ours and we are his and he is over the house of God. And so he's saying, since we have these things, based on that logic, all these explanations, these great truths that have been given, then he leads us, the author leads us into three great exhortations. Three, let us do these things. First one starts in verse 22. Let us draw near. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Draw near to God is absolutely one of the things, one of the great aims of the author for his audience. It's one of the great aims of God, that we would draw near to him. We read in chapter 4, if you skip over a few pages, verse 16, he says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. In chapter 7, it says in verse 19, it says, On the other hand, we have a better hope that is introduced through which, it's better hope in Jesus, through which we draw near to God. In verse 25, this great verse, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This author has been working and working and working that we might understand what Jesus has accomplished on others' behalf, but that we might draw near to God. Draw near is not just to draw near in physical proximity. It's it's to draw near in relationship with God. God desires nearness, and Jesus gives us access through his life, through his death, that we might draw near. Church, the, the eternal God, the glorious God, has graciously provided a way for us to be near to him in relationship. And it's through Jesus. 
And grace upon grace has been heaped upon us that he has not just provided access, but he has actually commanded us to draw near. There's a command to come near to God. It's gracious of God to have granted access, but then he wants that access to be used. He wants us to go, come in, draw near. It's not a token offering. You might do this with... uh, your kids' friends or people around the neighborhood, like, oh, yeah, come back anytime. When really you're thinking, don't come back anytime. <laughs> like, when you leave, like, just be gone for a while. And because it's not this token offering, the response should be that we take him up on the offer. Like, he's made access and says, come in, draw near, and he commands us to do this. We need to take him up on the offer. We need to be a little bit like Cousin Eddie. You might know Cousin Eddie from Christmas Vacation. I bet you're surprised that I think that we should be like him in some ways if you're actually familiar with this character. Cousin Eddie shows up at the Griswold household totally as a surprise, right? They're lighting up the house and, you know, celebrating that the house finally got lit up by all the bulbs. And, and then Cousin Eddie shows up just hanging out. Like, Man, I'm surprised to see you here is the, the response. I'm like, yeah, we, we just wanted to make it a, a great family Christmas surprise. He's family, so he shows up at Christmas, assuming his welcome. He's catching up with Clark in the movie. Clark is asking him about the awesome vehicle he drove up in, and he says that, uh, that there is an RV, Clark. Now, you don't go falling in love with it, because we're taking it with us when we leave here next month. <laughs> and with that, you know, Clark chokes on his eggnog. Now, here's what he does, right? He's family, and he assumes access that the family relationship affords. And so he just shows up and he assumes that it's no problem for him to just stay for a month or whatever. I think people would agree that that Eddie's kind of a bold, bold guy. Doesn't seem to have any sort of guilt by being part of the family. He stays a long time. And that's like how God has called us to draw near. With confidence. Boldness, like we belong here. No guilt, no shame about being there and staying a long time. God wants the access that he has given to us to be used. He wants us to show up and he wants us to come with confidence and he wants us to stay a long time. He gives us the manner which he wants us to be there. He says at the end of verse 22, draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. With our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our our bodies washed with pure water. So have a true heart, a a singleness and purpose, a a unity in your heart that you want God. You're you're purposed on Him. God promised those kind of hearts in the new covenant, didn't He? Hearts that would know Him and would want to know Him. Hearts that would obey Him and want to obey Him. Draw near with that kind of heart. Draw near in full assurance of your faith. Full assurance of faith is is saying like, I I can't do otherwise even if I may think that something else may another. There's no other option in my mind. I have to do this. Like the disciples, when they say, Jesus turns to them, are you going to fall away too? Are you going to leave me too? Where else are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. That's full assurance of faith. Like, I know other people are leaving. That seems like that's not a bad idea, but you have the words of eternal life. Where else am I going to go? It's convincing. You're convicted. Like, I'm hemmed in. I can't go anywhere else. Full assurance of faith. With hearts that are sprinkled. In other words, there's that deep cleansing that the blood of Jesus had accomplished. We read that in verse 9, or chapter 9, where his blood purifies the guilty conscience. He's saying, that's the kind of heart you bring before me. 
where you're deeply and inwardly cleansed because of the effectiveness of Jesus' sacrifice. Come with bodies washed with pure water. So there's this new covenant promise that's given to us in Ezekiel chapter 36. God is, through the prophet Ezekiel, talking about the new covenant, the thing that he is going to do for them, and he, and he combines this water element here. He says, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and a new spirit I will put in within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And so he speaks of, in the new covenant, there's this total cleansing, not just outwardly where you're ceremonial cle- ceremonially cleansed, not just through the law you're going to be cleansed. I'm going to, I'm going to cleanse you wholly. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to put my spirit within you. He's saying you're going to be clean. You are now sanctified. You are purified in Jesus. That comes in the new covenant. That comes with the giving of the spirit. We see this again in John chapter 3 where water and spirit are are joined as Jesus has a conversation with religious and righteous Nicodemus. He says of him, you need to be born again of water and spirit. The same thing that was spoken of in Ezekiel chapter 36. And he says, you should know these things. You're the teacher of the law. You should know what I'm talking about. Believers are those who are born again. They are those who have been cleansed by their trust and faith in Jesus, his blood His work cleanses them so that now we can come with bodies washed before God. Not just through ceremonial washing, but by faith in Jesus do we have this. All of these new covenant realities, the things that he's promised, the things that he's talking about are ours in Jesus. And they are meant to lead us to drawing near in relationship to God. So in other words, as he goes through this list of, you know, you need to have hearts sprinkled clean, you need to have bodies washed, he's saying all these obstacles that stood between you and God, all these barriers, those have all been dealt with in Jesus. Those have all been dealt with in Christ and what he has done. Your, Your heart, it was evil, I gave you new heart. Your conscience was guilty because you are a sinner and I've cleansed that through Jesus' blood. But if we were to look at believers' lives, we would look at our own lives my guess is if we were thinking about drawing near, we wouldn't draw the same conclusions. That all obstacles are, are taken care of. That they're gone. That they've been dealt with. Because we go through the list. All these still seem like obstacles, right? A heart, like he talks about here, a heart that's a true heart, single purpose heart. And my heart is divided. I want God. I also want these other things. I have a divided heart. We have unsteady faith, not this full assurance of faith. We're unsure, is, is Jesus really for us? We have constant low-level guilt at the least, not feeling that our sins are actually and fully taken away. And so Hebrews has been going after that unbelief, shelling it with long explanations of how much greater Jesus is, how much greater his covenant that he's made is, how much greater his sacrifice is. He's the better covenant. He's the better sacrifice. He's a better high priest. He's a better savior. And that explanation, if we trust it, if we believe it, is meant to lead us toward right application, right living of it. And so the reality is is that we don't draw near to Jesus. We don't draw near to God because we don't believe the things in the new covenant that have been given to us are true. 
or at least not true for us. There are obstacles because of our unbelief. We don't draw near because we don't believe as we should. It's not a matter of mechanics in our drawing near. It's a matter of faith. And that's when we need to hear again. This is the purpose for which he has written. Starting in verse 19, we need to hear these things again. He just gave this long explanation, several chapters of here's how Jesus is better and here's what he's accomplished on your behalf. And then he's drawing it in, verse 19, because we have confidence, because we have Jesus as this high priest over this house of God, we get to draw near. And so we need to hear again because faith, the unbelief that's keeping us from drawing near, that, that comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We need to hear again. We need to listen again. We need to read again. We need to let the hammer of God's word go after our hardened hearts. We need to let the fire of God's word warm it and melt us that we might draw near, that we might believe God's promises are true and draw near in those promises, knowing that I can have confidence here. I can draw near here because I've been cleansed, I've been purified, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done. We believe those things and we draw near. Even if we don't have a perfect sense of those promises, even if we don't have a perfect feeling of those promises, we still get to draw near. Because we mustn't let our feeling and sense outweigh or negate the truths that are ours in Christ. So believers, what's most true about us is now found not in us, but in Christ. He is our identity. And our identity is secure in Him, so we get to draw near. Let us then draw near is the author's exhortation. All the new covenant promises are ours. We can go boldly. We can go cleansed. We can go as purified. Draw near to God. But the author continues with a second let us command, starting in verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. This is reinforcing what he's already Encouraged earlier in chapter 3, verse 14, he says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since then we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So here, Say, let's hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. The confession of our hope is what is central to the book of Hebrews, what is central to all of the Bible. That is the person and work of Jesus. We're to hold fast all that he says he is, and all that he has said he is started early in Hebrews 1.1. We have the Son of God superior to all others. He's this great high priest, the inaugurator of a new covenant, a forerunner pioneer of our faith. We draw near through his work and he's accomplished for us as not only the offerer but the offering who himself has poured out his blood that we might have payment for sin. So when we're talking about holding fast our confession of our hope, we're talking about holding fast to Jesus, all that he is, all that he has done, to all that he is in and of himself, all that he's accomplished, all the promises that he's given to us, we're holding on to those things. And the the author of Hebrews says we're we're, we're to do this without wavering. There's not much I do in life without wavering. It's a weighty order to say, why don't you hold fast this confession of your hope and just go ahead and do it without wavering. That's weighty. But what I think is weightier still is the reason he says, hold it without, hold it without wavering. At the end of verse 23, he says, for he who promised is faithful. Now, there are companies that have 
dangerous work environments where they're doing a lot of physical activity, moving things around, in and out. And sometimes in those places of business, they'll have a sign-up somewhere to help promote safety. It says, this department has been X number of days without an accident. Some companies probably just ignore that completely because they, it hasn't been that long. So there's like, let's just not put that up to highlight that it hasn't been that many days without an accident. Here's what we have about God. We could, we could put in there like, God has gone an eternal number of days without accident. Right? He has an eternity past of a faithful record. He, he, spotless record. There's, there's not one time when God hasn't been faithful. Not once. In eternity past and all the way to now. And we have all these examples all over the scripture that show here's God being faithful again and again and again and again. He has an eternal number of days of faithfulness because God always keeps his promises. He absolutely, without fail, God keeps his promises. He is the faithful one. And so when we're talking about holding fast without wavering, that's a foolish idea if we're going to say, you need to hold fast without wavering based upon your strength, based upon your knowledge, based upon something within you, that would be foolish. And we don't do anything without wavering, it seems. But when he says to hold fast to your hope without wavering, because he who promises faithful, then we have solid ground for obeying this command. Only when it's based upon the unwavering God and His faithfulness does this command make sense to us that we can hold fast to our hope without wavering because He who promised is faithful. Hebrews has already described how believers are to have this sure and steadfast anchor of their souls. So when the waves come, when the storms would seek to destroy, when we're being tossed to and fro, We're held fast. There's this holding on that happens because we're rooted in something much deeper and better and greater than ourselves. So we can be unwavering. Not because we in and ourselves are unwavering, because Jesus is. We want to be tied to him. Because God is faithful, we hold these things without wavering. So are we committed to that? Are we committed to holding fast the confession of our hope without wavering, come what may? Not because I know I can do it, not because I have confidence in myself, but because I know God is faithful. Is your hope based upon the faithfulness of God? If the person and work of Jesus is the substance of our confession, then we can do this. And we should do this. We should hold fast. And all the more when we see this seems like holding fast in the middle of all that's going on without wavering seems impossible... Shouldn't that perhaps stir us even more to draw near with confidence? To let us draw near, and then that leads us back into letting us hold fast. As we seek to hold fast, we draw near. And as we hold fast, we draw near. We also, continuing on, verse 24, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Consider, giving thoughtful attention to like sometimes the hedge in your yard just needs tiny little pruning shears. And sometimes the hedge in your yards needs to be just demolished with a chainsaw. Like you just need to do some chainsaw surgery on that thing. But you give thought to it. Like what, what's needed here? There's careful attention and God's people should be known for their consideration. Consider one another. Consider how to stir up one another. What's implied here is that they know who one another is. There's an understanding like that. 
we know, when he says one another, I'm not looking around like, who is he talking about? Like, they know in the context of what they're talking about that they know who one another is. There's a church that he's speaking to. There's a local body. He says to them that they are brothers, verse 19. He's already said in chapter 3, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. There's a, a familiar language that's being used here. These are brothers. They are family. That is that those who are in Jesus are in Jesus with one another, with others who are in Jesus. That is always the case in the New Testament. You will never escape that reality when you read the New Testament, that if you're in Jesus, you're in Jesus with others who are in Jesus, or you're not in Jesus. The people of God are often spoken of in familial terms because they have family ties, because they're all related to their elder brother, Jesus Christ, the Son. So he says, as those who understand who one another is in your context... Here's what you do. Consider how to stir up one another. Stir up. Stir is to rouse to activity, to provoke. But when I think of stir, I th- I, I, for some reason this, this comes to my mind. I just think of like a little teacup and just stirring your tea around. That's what I thought of. Stirring your tea. Getting everything worked in the right way as it meets your taste. But the word stir is much stronger. In fact, in Acts chapter 15 verse 39 It's used to speak of the sharp disagreement between Paul and Barnabas. Same same root word. And so in other words, there's there's some strength behind it. Stir is a strong word, so it's it's less like tea and a lot more like like you're putting your KitchenAid on full speed. Like that thing can it can do some damage. It's it's not violent, but almost like you get your hand in there, you're in trouble. But it's controlled. It has a context with which it's to work in. And as family, God's people are to consider one another, how to stir up one another. When I just say, like, as family, you know how to stir up one another. Some of you are like, I'm expert at that. I know how to stir up my family, no problem. (laughs) But this strong word is, is for hopefully a better purpose than maybe you might be thinking. It's to stir up to love and good works. In other words, you're stirring. This strong sense of stirring is meant for the good of others. Not primarily for your own good, but primarily for the good of others. You're trying to stir them up to love and good works. It's kind of the the sum and substance of the Christian life, isn't it? That we love God with all that we are, that we love others as we love ourselves, that we be about the Lord's business, love and good works. We need to do this kind of thing. So we're stirring for that purpose to be accomplished in other people's lives. And so as God's people, we we want to consider, how how do we stir up? And what should be obvious as we start to give consideration to one another is that not everyone needs to be stirred in the same way. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, Admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, but be patient with all of them. And so there are different kinds of stirrings, right? There's some need to be admonished, and some we need to encourage, we need to help some others, but we've got to be patient with them all. But you're giving consideration to, to these people and how I can appropriately stir them up to love and good works. And, and so that's what... That's what the author is calling for in Hebrews. That's what Paul calls for in 1 Thessalonians, to take out the, the scalpel. And it, it's strong. It can cut very, very deep, but it's very precise. It doesn't get much damage around it. It can cut deep, but it's precise. We have to admit, brothers and sisters, that we often don't give consideration to one another. Not good enough to stir one another up in the way that we should. And we pull out the chainsaw when we need to be pulling out the scalpel. Because we're not considering one another. Often this is a symptom of our own self-concern, our own selfishness. We don't want to dig in. Or we don't want others to dig in. 
But notice that for the well-being of the body, for loving God's people, unconcerned toward one another is not an option. In the context of our local body, we are to consider how to stir up one another. This is everyone's responsibility to everybody everybody else in the body. Consider how to stir up one another. There's not an option to withdraw from that. Not be faithful and obedient to the Lord. Now we live in, without doubt, a fully-fledged consumer culture where we pick and choose what fits and works with us best without sense of loyalty other than loyalty to me. And we are consumers taking, taking, and taking. This is our culture and our age, putting me first. But as the church, as people in Christ, as Christians, we are to reflect something different. In our culture, we we pick what will most, most benefit me with the least amount of cost. And if we let that consumer type culture, if we allow that to persist in one another, if we allow that to persist in the church, we will destroy the church. We will destroy one another. It's out of sync with biblical community. It's out of sync with the life of Jesus, the one we're meant to live like. I'm profoundly thankful that Jesus didn't pick and choose what felt best to him. They didn't come to be a consumer. I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. We are to be consumers. Always taking, taking, taking. Always putting me first. We're to reflect Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection. Reflect the spirit of what he was doing. And we're to carry that out as the body of Christ. So not putting me first. Not thinking how I can take Christ didn't do that. So the church isn't first a place to be ministered to, although we desperately hope that you are ministered to today. It's not a place to just be ministered to. It's a place to minister. We've been served by Jesus, and so now we serve others. We've been loved by Jesus, and so now we love others. We've been ministered to by Jesus, and now we minister to others. We've been considered then we give consideration to others. Think of this, the joyful privilege that we have together. All of us get to work together as one, the same group working for the same thing. How can we love and stir one another up to love and good works? That's what we're after. How can we do that with one another? Let's consider how we can do that. We're all on the same page with that. We ought to be. And Hebrews gives us a place to start. Gives a few actions that would help stir up one another to love and good works. You see in verse 25. It says, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. So God is, say this carefully, God is not only concerned about the regularity of your own quiet time. He's not unconcerned about that. But you're not going to read a lot of passages about how you need to take care of that only. God surely wants you to have time with him to draw near on your own, in word, in prayer. But what you see a lot more often in the scripture is serious concern about the corporate time together with the Lord. He is concerned about your assembling together. So when he says, verse 24, let's... Consider how to stir one another up, not neglecting, verse 25, to meet together. 
That sounds a little bit strange and odd in our culture. Not neglect to meet together. We have all these things we have access to on our own. Why would we need to get together to do that? Well, I think that that is a challenge for us to think through, but I don't think that's the most difficult part of this verse. One author says it this way, that the remarkable thing here is not the summons to keep meeting together, although, once again, in our culture, that can be a big thing, but the instruction that when you do, look past your own nose to the needs of others. It's not just the meeting together, it's also when we're meeting together, we're supposed to do certain things. We're already to give consideration how to stir up one another. And so, yeah, don't neglect to meet together, but when we do, we're doing something there. And yet, we know that no church, no Christian is going to be able to consider one another if they keep one another at a distance. The church, by definition, it's more than this, but it's not less, is an assembly. It's a, it's a gathering. If it's not that, then it's not a church, right? It's more than just an assembly, but it's not less than an assembly. If you never meet, you're, never, you're not a church. It must meet, by definition. Not meeting is not an option. So in our church membership, we include this, that we, quote, faithfully attending corporate and small group gatherings because we want to encourage faithfulness to the Scripture. So we, we covenant together. Let's, let's commit to meeting together. To not forsake this, to, to make sure that we're not neglecting, as is the habit of some. Not meeting apparently was a temptation and a habit of some of them. It's not easy, to, or it's not hard to see why. Right? We read in chapter 10, we're getting ready to read the next week, like some of them by meeting together were, were opening themselves up to the plundering of their households. Some of them by meeting together were put on hit lists. Some of them by meeting together were then exercised from their, from their family. You're, you're, you're outside of us now. I mean, there's all sorts of problems that they would have faced by being uniquely Christian, by following Christ. And there are churches all over the world right now where that's reality. Some of you have been to some of those places. You meet in secret. You take precautionary measures as you go. You're working to keep things secure. You're, you're taking different routes each time you go. But you know what? They don't neglect it. Even though they know that as I go, I'm at great risk and I'm putting others at risk because we're all meeting together. They're bold in this. Why? Because they want to be obedient to God. And it is obedience to meet together and to not neglect it no matter what the cost or the risk is. They understand that it's worth those risks, that it is something that they are going to do to obey, but that it's worth it. They know what Dietrich Bonhoeffer pinned long ago, that the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Incomparable joy and strength. So even if they're going to die just for going, their joy and their strength is coming from that place. That's the way God intended it. That's the way God designed it. You'll get that incomparable joy and strength in your own quiet time. You might get a taste of it, you might get some of it, and that's awesome, and God cares about that too, but he also means for the meeting together of people to be a primary means of his grace being poured out that we might have strength and joy in the Lord. So this is the place to start when we consider how to stir up one another. Be physically present. It's so encouraging. When, we, when I step up here and I look at all these people, all the faith, like that encourages me. So thank you. You're doing it already. You didn't even mean to maybe. You do this in groups, like you're physically around one another. 
Like the physical presence, like actually being there matters. In a world that is full of, we can connect through wireless means, the physical presence has never been replaced as a primary way that God encourages and stirs up his people. Have you experienced that as we've gathered corporately? That sense of like, if I I just felt this way, if I got this sense on Monday morning, it'd be great. Have you ever felt that in your home group? That the people around you, the encouragement, the prayers that they've given you, just been incomparable joy, incomparable strength. What a blessing that is that God calls us to that. And meeting together is one of the primary ways that God is using to stir up love and good works in his people. Meeting together. The assembly of believers is a primary means of stirring up love and affection for God and spurring on good works to the sake of his name. Martin Luther said this well when he says, At home in my house there is no warmth or vigor in me, but in the church when the multitude is gathered, a fire is kindled in my heart and it breaks its way through. Don't neglect it. That's what Hebrews says. Don't neglect to meet together. Prioritize it. Prioritize gathering. Prioritize this corporate gathering. Prioritize meeting with others where you can carry out faithfully these one another commands to stir up one another and to be stirred by others. He finishes verse 25 saying this, But encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So he's given us a couple places to start in in considering one another. Like, be physically present, don't neglect to meet together, and encouraging one another. Encourage one another. So by necessity, if we're going to encourage one another, all the more as we see the day drawing near, you, you know that this is going to extend far beyond just the corporate gathering, far beyond even our, our home group gatherings, our small group gatherings. This is going way beyond those times. Right? It's not radical for, for God to say, like, gather corporately, do it consistently, do it regularly, and do this. That's not a radical command. He's calling us to everyday kind of living, everyday kind of encouragement toward one another. That's a lot higher calling than just saying, well, don't forget to meet together. Say, no, it, All the more as you see the day drawing near. The aim of our encouragement is spiritual, to lift up one another's hearts toward the Lord. But you can see that like it grows in its urgency, not weakens as we go along. So each day as we get older, each minute, we should grow all the more urgent to encourage one another. And one author says this about encouragement, that it gives struggling people the eyes to see an unseen Christ. All that's going on around us. All of our world, all the sin that's within us, man, we, we can miss what others can help us see. We can encourage and give others sight to the unseen Christ and the graces at work in our lives that we do not see, how God is at work encouraging one another. This should be gaining urgency in our lives. In other words, as time goes on, we don't let off the gas pedal, we push it down even harder. We gotta get going. Day is coming near, encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. In chapter 9, verse, or chapter 9, verse 28, we're reminded of that Christ, he appeared once to bear the sins of many, and he's going to appear a second time, and we are to be eagerly waiting for him. And we're often reminded in the scripture that our eagerness and our waiting for him is not a passiveness. So one of the main things then is to mark believers until the day of Christ's return is encouraging one another all the more. That should mark us. Encouraging one another. Believers are to 
turn each other's eyes to the unseen Christ all the more as they see the day drawing near. And here's what I think that we could say, that encouragement has changed the world. Think about Jesus, Peter. There's probably lots of illustrations we could use of Jesus encouraging. Jesus with Peter, he, he tells them, right, I, Satan wanted to sifted you like wheat. You're going to turn away, but I prayed for you. And when you turn back, here's what you need to do. Go take care of your brothers. He, he gathers him on a beach. You failed me three times, right? Yeah, I told you you're going to deny me. You said you wouldn't, and you still did it. Do you love me? Feed the sheep. Right? He encouraged Peter, and now Peter goes on to shape the world. We stand on his shoulders this morning. Paul. Paul has this friend early on. His name is Barnabas, known as the son of encouragement. Perhaps the apostles in Jerusalem and the other Christians would never have accepted Paul. Here's a guy who drug people to court and would uh, look over people's killings if they were following the name of Christ. And yet Barnabas comes in and he's encouraging. He's encouraging Paul. He's encouraging brothers. You need to listen to him. You need to think about this. And then what happens? Paul and his missionary journeys and Barnabas, they shape the world. Encouragement. And what a privilege to be able to do that and to be commanded to do that. Encouragement is, is, is at the same time, it's like it's hard to say something profound about it because it's, it's like incredibly ordinary. And yet, at the same time, it's abundantly used in amazing ways by God. Encouragement. So it's a privilege as the church, as people of God, to be called to encouragement. And this is a ministry, once again, this is not a ministry for a select few. Who's he writing to? Now you encourage one another. This is for brothers, those who are in Christ. You are to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. It's a ministry of every believer within the church. It's, it's, you didn't say, well, if you have the gift of encouragement, then you need to work on encouraging, especially all the more. Encourage one another is what he says. So who have you encouraged this week? Who have you considered how can I give them encouragement? How can I stir them up to love and good works? Spouses, have you done this with one another this week? Have you encouraged your wife? Have you encouraged your husband? How much more as you live in the same house and see one another's sin do you need to have encouragement from one another? Do you encourage your kids? Are we passing out encouragement? Is this something that's marking our lives as believers? It ought to be. We ought to have more and more urgency in making sure we're going to encourage others all the more as we see the day drawing near is what he says. And if we're not encouraging, then why not? Why are we not? Why are we holding back? Shouldn't we of all people, with everything that's going on, knowing that a day is drawing near, shouldn't we be the most encouraged? No one else has the confidence and the hope that, yeah, all these things are going on, but we know the end. We don't have to worry and have anxiety. We, we know God's in control and we know what the end is that he has appointed. We, we ought to be the most encouraged. Then, out of that, don't we need to be the most encouraging people on the planet? Amen. Should there be anyone that's more encouraging than us? Should there be any group that's more encouraging to one another than us? The day is getting closer, praise God. <laughs> and as it draws near, we're going to need encouragement all the more. And we need to make encouragement our business as believers. So as we think through these three let us exhortations from the author of Hebrews, may we not forget this, that we're called in this together. 
They do not say, let us, and then I'm putting this burden on you to go do these things on your own. Draw near on your own? Yes, draw near together. Hold fast on your own? Yes, hold fast together. And consider one another on your own? Yeah, consider also together. That we're in this together, that we're called together to overcome. That where we're fa- we failed, we're going to need one another. We're going to need encouragement. We're going to need the exhortation from one another. Draw near again. Hold fast some more. You seem like you're letting go. Come, consider one another. You're only looking at yourself. We're going to need that all the more. Let's do this together. That's what we're called to. The beauty of this is, is though we've, we've sinned against God and one another in these areas, that the truths that have driven us to these applications are still true. So you failed to draw near, so you failed to hold fast, so you failed to consider one another, you failed to meet together, you failed to encourage, guess what? You get the blessing of starting again because Jesus is still high priest. Amen. And his blood has already been sacrificed, has already given access to you, the way is still open. Indeed, he lives to intercede for us. Amen. And we know that when we draw near, as he says in the book of Hebrews, we will surely Find mercy and grace to help us in our time of need. Let's let that fuel us forward as we do this together. Let's pray together. I want to give us some time to just reflect and repent. Think through our lives before the Lord in silence. There are things you need to repent of. Lay them before the Lord. Trust that you have a high priest who is interceding for you, who can perfectly represent you and has made a perfect sacrifice for you. If there are ways you need to resolve in your heart to carry these commands out, resolve right now. And then tell others to help you continue in your resolve. Oh God, we thank you for your word. How desperately we need it. And we thank you that it's living and that it's active, that it gets to work on us in ways we never would have thought or imagined. We pray that it would continue to do its altering work in us. Father, thank you for the body that we get to be commanded together and get the joy and the privilege of obeying together, of encouraging one another, of meeting together. What an incomparable joy and strength that we can receive from those things. Father, I pray that you would fuel us forward by the one who has gone before us on our behalf, that the love that he has shown us would be pouring out of us to others, that we would encourage one another all the more as we see the day drawing near because we are so encouraged because our great high priest is in control of the cosmos. Father, would you help us to draw near to you 
Would you help us to hold fast the confession of our hope? Would you help us to, ha- to consider how we can stir one another up to love and good works? And all of these things require your work. But use us as your instruments and receive every bit of glory from it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.